We have been just finished um, Joshua chapter 11, and uh, I'm sorry, jo- jo- yeah, Joshua chapter 11, and then we're going to move pretty swiftly through Joshua chapter 12 and Joshua chapter 13. But I want to give a bit of a summary as to where we are with the life of Joshua. And, and as far as his military strategy, everything that we've seen to this point. So uh, what we've seen is we've seen several battles that have occurred as they came into the land. And so just stressing again, um, let, me, let me go over this. They, they, came da- they were down here in the wilderness for 40 years, came back up uh, on the eastern side of the River Jordan, which goes from the Sea of Galilee down to, down to the Dead Sea. They came across, first, hit, uh, first attacked Jericho, made camp at Gilgal, then came across the southern attack, and then, then the northern attack that followed. Now, now what, we, what we covered so far is just just the highlights of the battles. There were many other battles, and we know this because there's lists of kings that were conquered that we never even were given the details of the battles. All that we're given is this southern campaign and the northern campaign so far. But there's many other kings along there that, that were battled, uh, that, that they fought against. And so let me summarize uh, something of, of his battles all of the battles that Joshua underwent were all offensive. They were never defensive, meaning that, that uh, he engaged all of them. He engaged with every one of them. It was never defensive for Joshua. They were planning. They were, they, they would, several of them would get together and be strategizing for an attack. They would be meeting in a place and gather their armies for an attack, and he would surprise them and attack them. All of his battles were offensive. And, and, uh, and I think that this is an important lesson for us in the church because as the body of Christ, we are to learn from this sort of thing. Jesus said, said to Peter in Matthew 16, uh, verse 18, He said, I will say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it or prevail against it. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Gates are not usually offensive, they're defensive. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So in other words, the church is on the offense. We are on the offensive. We're not, defeat, we're not on the defensive against the enemy. We are to be on the offensive. All of his battles were on the offensive. And so often in a Christian life, it's like, oh, well, the enemy is just tearing me up. That is not what our lives are supposed to be like. Joshua was constantly on the offensive. He was on the offensive. And this is where we should be like. There is a, a, a portion that we are to understand from the attacks of Joshua. What does that mean to us? As we've read before, our battles are not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, against spiritual forces. That's what, our, our, what we're up against. And this is what we should do. This is what you should be praying. This is what I should be praying. Going on the offensive against the enemy. What can we do to take ground from the enemy? Who can I share with to take ground from the enemy? The second thing about all of his attacks, as we've read so far and and continue, we will see all of his attacks. He used the element of surprise. 
He was always on the offensive and he used the element of surprise. He never announced, I'm coming. He never announced, well, in, in, in three weeks, I'm coming. He never did that. He was always used the element of surprise. You want to follow the biblical pattern? That's exactly what he did. He used the element of surprise. And number three, he killed all the fleeing troops that he could. So as the troops were fleeing, he would kill them all before they could get back to their cities and, and, and cast up a strong defense against him. It's right here. I mean, he killed all the fleeing troops so that they couldn't enter their cities and mount a defense against him. That was the pattern. Now, if we look at his spiritual leadership, Joshua's spiritual leadership, look at the qualities that he had in his spiritual leadership. He maintained his promise to Rahab, who had made, a, who had made a, an agreement with some of his troops in the city of Jericho. He maintained his promise to protect her and to protect all of her family. Even though he was not a part of that promise, it was his troops and not him. Yet he maintained that promise to them. Some could say, well, in, in, in the zeal of war, you know, well, he killed her and her family too. No, he maintained his promise to her. He kept his word to the Gibeonites, even though they deceived him into making an agreement with them that he would not attack the, the city of Gibeon. They deceived him into this. Once he made the agreement, he maintained his agreement with them. That's a powerful thing. That he can't say, well, you know, I, I, you shysters, you know, you ripped me off, so we're going to kill your city too. He didn't do that. Even when it cost him something, and it cost him a lot of credibility with his own troops. Why did you do this? They were complaining and grumbling against him and the leadership there. Why did you do this? Still, he maintained that. Sometimes in business, in business, you make, make a deal that's not to the best of your advantage. But you must maintain that. Remember the spiritual leadership, the pattern we see in this. Because of an agreement, because of an agreement, it was maintained. Even though they were ripping him off, he maintained his bargain with them. And number three, he did not use his position for personal gain. He did not use his position for personal gain. You would think, as we're going to start reading, we're going to see in Joshua chapter 12 and Joshua chapter 13, they're going to start dividing up the land. The land was divided up in two ways. It was divided up by tribe, according to the size of the tribe. The larger tribes got more land, the smaller tribes got less land. So the amount of land was decided upon by the size of the tribe. The area of what was going to be given to each of them was decided on by taking lots, by drawing lots. That was the, that's how the area was going to be decided as to who would get certain areas. The entire war was seven years. The entire battling was seven years. That, there were still pockets of resistance after that. But this idea that he did not use his position for personal gain is really powerful. Most kings, remember, he was not a king in Israel. He was considered like one of the first judges. But he never used it for personal gain. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 17. We've looked at this portion before, but we're going to look at it again because it, it, is a, it is really tells us a lot about, about, uh, about the way leadership should be. And the things that, that, that should happen in leadership. Because many of you someday are going to get into certain positions. And I have no problem with people becoming wealthy. I, 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 
I pray all of you become wealthy. But as the Bible says, teach the wealthy to be generous. Teach the wealthy to be generous. He never said, you take everything you have and you distribute it up because then it would be fair. In the early church, in the book of Acts, they were never commanded to do that. But in the Jerusalem church, all the, all the people took all their money and pooled it into the church and divided it up to everyone according to whoever had need. And some believers will say, you see, that's the pattern we ought to do. No, God never told them to do that. And within a decade, the Jerusalem church was bankrupt. The Jerusalem church was in terrible need and the Gentile churches, Paul was bringing offerings to maintain the Jerusalem church. It never worked. It never worked. And that's why when you get into the epistles of the New Testament, it never says, tell the rich to give away all their money and distribute everything equally. It says, tell the rich to be generous and not to put their security in money. That's what he told them. You be generous. I hope that the rich keep being rich in the body of Christ so that they can keep giving. But what he said to leadership in Israel, which is a good pattern for leadership in the body of Christ, if, if we are serving in the body of Christ, to be very careful about using the body of Christ to amass riches. That's what we need to be careful about. Read in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set the king, a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you shall certainly set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your own countrymen. You shall choose and set his king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver or gold for himself. <clears throat> that was the pattern of leadership. That was the pattern of leadership, that they did not use their leadership, which was a role of service, to have personal gain. <clears throat> he, did, he was not to multiply horses. He was not to multiply wives, silver, or gold. And we see that in Joshua. He didn't even take extra land for himself. Didn't do it. That was the mark of good leadership. It was not all about him. It was all about the nation of Israel. I would encourage you, if you are not a minister, if you don't make your living through the body of Christ, through the, the, the service in the body of Christ, if you are not an, a paid evangelist, a full-time evangelist, or a pastor in a church, if you don't make your living, be very careful about taking money for Christian service. Be very careful about that. In other words, we serve in the body of Christ not to get paid, we serve because we're serving Him who gave Himself for us. It is our demonstration to Him of service. I would encourage you who are going to be physicians to offer up your time in Christian service, in missions, and in places where you can serve and give of your time free service to the poor, service to take care of those in need, to use what you're going to learn to serve people in that way. I urge you to learn the blessing of taking what you have, what God has given you, and give it back to the body of Christ. You can go and speak in big churches and they will offer you honoraria. 
for speaking in those churches. For myself, if I am mentioning the name of Jesus Christ, I refuse all honoraria because I never want to confuse my giving, my service in the body of Christ with getting honoraria. That's not to say that if you're, that if you're in full-time service, Paul said, if you make your living from the gospel, you need to be paid. That's your living from the gospel. But Rice University pays my salary, and I do quite well. I'm quite comfortable. I don't need those, those extra little things. Would I love to have it? Sure. But this is my service. I encourage you when you're serving in the body of Christ, don't take the money. Don't do it. This was what Joshua learned. And Joshua was following this pattern. None of the kings followed this pattern. David amassed great riches for himself, multiple wives for himself, for himself which was his downfall. Solomon amassed huge amounts for himself and, and, and uh, uh, he amassed hundreds of wives and hundreds of concubines, which was his spiritual downfall. Take heed to these things. Learn from these great men of God like Joshua, who was not amassing things for himself. And the way you can maintain your walk in purity is by obeying the word of God. Look what it further on says. In, in verse 18 of Deuteronomy 17. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of Le Levitical priests. It shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of, this, of these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandments to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. He says, you take a copy of, of these scrolls, of this book, and the king is to write himself a copy. No smartphones with the whole Bible on them. You write your own copy. And it had to be with you all the time. It says, and it is to be with him. He can't say, well, you know, it's too big to carry around. It had to be with him. He should carry it around with him all the time. And he shall read it all the days of his life. What makes you, what makes me greater than these kings? What makes them more susceptible to trouble than us? Nothing. We're all corrupt. That's why it says you are to take this word of God and read it every day of your life. Every day of your life you're to read this. He shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. The Bible will bring fear of God in your life. And this is a good thing. The fear of God in your life. That he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes. That his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen. How do our hearts not get lifted up? When you get all of these degrees and all of these accolades and all your, your names in the paper and all of this, how, does it, how, does you, how, how do you not get lifted up? By getting your nose in the Word of God. That is the only thing that will keep us from pride. When some of you are going to become CEOs and presidents of hospitals and, 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 and universities and things like that, and you laugh. No, some of you are going to hit those types of positions. Your, your, your head will be lifted up above your countrymen if you're, if you're not in the Word of God. And for a Christian, it is a shameful thing to walk around in that sort of pride because everybody else sees it except we ourselves. It's written on our foreheads. Everybody sees it. We keep ourselves in the Word of God. You are never going to be above the Word of God. And if you think, oh, well, you know, that's a dated document. Let me tell you something. Long after you're dead, 
hundreds of years, thousands of years after you're dead and gone, this book will be remaining. This book will be here. This is timeless. This is ageless. We live in a fraction of human history. Tiny little window. We're here. We're gone. This word of God will remain. There is respect for the word of God. Honor for the word of God. This is what he's saying. This is what Joshua did. Now let's turn to Joshua chapter 12. Joshua chapter 12. And an interesting thing in, in, in Joshua chapter 12 is that we're going to see the, this, this, uh, uh, this listing of all these different kings that, that Israel has defeated. He goes through all the different territories that have been defeated, and then he just starts listing them out. One after another after another, he starts listing them out. And this, this begins... Uh, um, this, this begins in, in verse, um, verse 9. The king of Jericho, one. The king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, one. The king of Jerusalem, one. The king of Hebron, one. The king of Jarmuth, one. The king of Lachish, one. The king of Eglon, one. The king of Gezer, one. The king of Debir, one. The king of Geder, one. Boom, boom, boom. He just starts listing them out. 31 kings that he defeated. 31 kings. And here we even see that he defeated the king of Bethel, which we didn't, we, we saw that he defeated Bethel. Here he says he took out the king there too. And, and uh, so you see this pattern. He just starts listing it out. This is the amazing thing of the word of God. It is just filled with name after name after name, place after place. This whole chapter, chapter 12, is name, place, name, place. You want why does God waste all this space? You know, Space is a premium in a newspaper. Space is a premium in a journal. You get so many words, you can't go beyond that. Be concise. What's with all the names? What's with all the kings? Because this shows the authenticity of the document. You can't make this stuff up. You can't do it. It talks about the trees that were local to those areas. It talks about the the gullies and the valleys and all the things that were happening in those cities. This brings authenticity to the Word of God. It's not a bunch of generalizations. It is there in your face. This is why you can't tear this book apart. It is so strong and so well documented. And then then in in chapter 13, we we start seeing another thing takes place. If you look at chapter 13 of Joshua, chapter 1. Then Joshua was old and advanced in years when the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years and very much of the land remains to be possessed. This is the land that remains. All the regions of the Philistines and the Girgashites and, the, and, and from Shehor to the east of Egypt. And so he starts listing out. He says, look, now you're old and advanced in years. So we know that Joshua lived to be 110. Joshua may well have been in his 80s or early 90s at this time. And he says, you're old and advanced in years, and he starts listing out, there's all these other errors. But Joshua was faithful, and it says it again and again, Joshua was faithful with the regions for which he was responsible. The actual land that is mapped out for the nation of Israel is, is, is uh, from, from where present-day Baghdad is, uh, uh, from the Euphrates River, all the way across to the river of Egypt. All the way across, so, so this is way off that map. All the way across to Egypt, which is down over here. That's all the land. They're not getting that land until Messiah comes. 
That's not going to be restored until Messiah comes. But what we see through the scriptures is as Israel obeys, their land expands. As they disobey, it contracts. We see it totally throughout the scriptures. And we see it in modern life as well. This sort of pattern. And he says that you are old and advanced in years. But he had just gotten done saying, and Joshua took everything that he was responsible for. So in other words, Joshua lived a certain period. And a certain period of time was available to him to serve. And he served and he did his role. Each one of us has a place. Now, I was trying to calculate how much, how much am I responsible for? What does God hold me accountable for? Where am I to be a witness? And it is just perfect, just perfect. I am a nano witness. Let me show you the calculation. Okay, so the earth is 510 times 10 to the 6 kilometers squared. That's 510 million kilometers squared. That's about 10 to the 9th or a billion kilometers squared, roughly. We're talking orders of magnitude here. The earth is a billion square kilometers, the surface of the earth. Rice University is 285 acres. That's 1.15 kilometer. So in other words, my part is 10 to the minus 9 of earth. 10 to the minus 9. I'm responsible for one billionth of the earth. That's what I'm to be faithful for. One one billionth of the earth. And since these are all orders of magnitude, everybody, this is about, if you have a little company, this is not that far off when we're talking orders of magnitude here. This is exactly what we're responsible for. A nano portion of the earth. That's it. A nano portion of the earth. God says you are responsible for. So what do we need to do? Turn to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. And we're going to be reading from verse 11. Luke chapter 19, verse 11. And what had happened just above this is he witnesses to, to, he tells Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. Zacchaeus is so moved by this. He gets saved. He says, if I've defrauded anybody, anything, I'm going to give it back. And I'll give four times back if I've defrauded anything from, from anyone. And the people are all upset saying he's going into the house of a sinner because, because uh, Zacchaeus was a tax gatherer, which was a Jew who would collect taxes for the Roman government and always extract some for themselves. And so Jesus told them a story. Jesus told them a story. And these servants of his, these slaves he's going to mention, are his laborers, us. And the people who were not receiving him were the Jews at the time, the people of the world that were not receiving him. But he says this, he says, while in verse 11 of Luke chapter 19, while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable. Now you talk about throwing shade. This, this, I don't know how you can read this. I mean, for your tender ears, I don't know how you do it. But anyway, I'm going to read it. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So he said a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called 10 of his slaves and he gave them 10 minas and said to them, do business with these until I come back. But his citizens hated him. And sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Okay, so he says, a man is going to go out and he's going to go out out and and, uh, um, go to a distant country and receive a kingdom for himself. And then he's going to return. He has 10 slaves. To each of the slaves, he gives a mina. That's a dollar or a hundred dollars or a thousand dollars. Whatever you give to somebody to start an investment. 
All right, so he gives to each one of them a dollar, a mina, each one of them. When he's gone, these people in the kingdom say, we don't want him. Tell him to stay away. We don't want him back. So you think God will say, oh, yeah, I understand. Or this, this guy, I, I understand. They want me back. I guess I, guess I don't want to go back. You know, if they don't want me, I guess I won't go back. Well, let's see what he did. Because it says his citizens hated him. When he returned, after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that they might know what business they had done. The first appeared saying, Master, your minor has made ten minus more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave. Because you have been faithful in a very little thing, you are to be in authority over ten cities. The second came saying, Your minor, master, has made five minus. And he said to him, You all... And you are to be over five cities. Another came saying, Master, here is your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are an exacting man. And you take up what you did not lay down and you reap what you do not sow. And he said to him, by your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man? Take up what I did and, and taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow, then why did you not put your money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. Then he said to the bystanders, take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Master, he has ten minas already. I tell you that everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. Whoa. This man, think of the way he spoke. He calls the ten slaves and he gives them each a mina. And he says, do business with this until I return. He gives to us talents. And he says, do business with this until I return. You owe something back in service to Christ. You serve the Lord. You go on mission trips. It's not comfortable. You're sleeping in quarters. You're sleeping on the ground and all these things. You do it. You serve the Lord. This is what we're called to. We serve the Lord. We do business with what He's given us. Do you have two eyes? Can you read the Word of God? Read it and start teaching others. You're not to be sitting there all these years, sitting there. Everybody feed me. I think I'll go to this campus group and get fed again tonight. That's not the way it works. It's you going and saying, where can I plug in? What can I do? If you don't feel that you have any gift of teaching and you put people asleep, then find out what your role is. Maybe you run a soundboard. Maybe you play a guitar. Maybe you move furniture. Maybe you carry chairs. You do some role of service. This is serving in the body of Christ. If you just take what He's given you and do nothing with it, He's going to take it from you. That's what the Word of God says. He's going to take it from you. You want to see what it's like to get more in life, to have more power? You use what He gives you and He gives you more. You use what He gives you and He drops more upon you. And He takes from the ones who don't use and He gives it to the ones that use. He's not all about fairness. Everybody should be equal. No way! He says, to those that are working for me, they're going to get more. To those that don't, they're going to, even what I've given them is going to be taken away from them. And I'll tell you how it's taken away from them because I've seen it. Because they don't do anything for the body of Christ. It's all about themselves and about themselves and everything is about themselves. And it leads to selfishness and divorce in their homes, the loss of family, the loss of everything 
for these people. It's not about us anymore. It's about service to Him. How explicit does the man have to be? He says that's what service to Him is like. He's given us things. We invest it. We give into this thing. It's not about us and serving me anymore. There are people that are laboring so that we can enjoy these things. There are people that are doing things. We are to serve. We are to be involved in doing these things. That's what He calls us to. Then He says to the man, the man says, you know, I, I was kind of scared of you. Because I know you reap where you do not sow. You're an exacting man. And you know, he says, he says to the, he says, uh, do you know that I'm an exacting man taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put the money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. In other words, he viewed God as exacting. He viewed God as unmerciful. He viewed this master as unmerciful. And that is what happened to him. In the way we view is the way it comes upon us. Turn to Psalm Psalm 18. Psalm 18. If you turn to Psalm 18, verse 25. Psalm 18, verse 25. To the faithful, you show yourself faithful. To the blameless, you show yourself blameless. To the pure, you show yourself pure. But to the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. He says, if you look at me as faithful, I will be faithful to you. To the faithful, he shows himself faithful. The New Testament puts it this way. It says in Luke chapter 6, by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. If we look at God as being hard and mean, this is exactly what we will perceive coming upon our lives. But if we look at God as merciful and kind and gracious, giving to us abundantly, this is what we will receive in life. The way we view him is the way we receive. He says, you view me as a hard man, as an exacting man, as one who can reap where I have not sown. By your standard of measure, it's going to be measured to you. That's the way you view me. That's the way it comes upon us. He says, to the faithful, you show yourself faithful. To the blameless, you show yourself blameless. To the pure, you show yourself pure. By your standard of measure, Jesus said, it will be measured to you in return. He says, to the devious, you show yourself shrewd. To the devious, you show yourself shrewd. In other words, there's a devious behavior. What you're going to see is you're going to try to outsmart God. You'll never outsmart him. You'll never outsmart him. You may outsmart some people of the world for some time. But money gained by by illicit means will never profit a person. It will be the destruction of your family. It'll be the destruction of your family. I've seen this so many times in my life. People thinking that they've gotten this great gain by doing something devious. They never profit. They are just bringing destruction right on into their homes. It is destruction. We serve God. We have a nano part of this world. Each one of us has just a tiny little fraction. One one billionth of, the, of this world. He says, you serve in this little area. You serve in this little area. Be careful what you do with your money. Learn to be generous. And be careful on how you serve the body of Christ. That you will serve giving of yourself. Giving of yourself because God has given you gifts. If you're pre-med and you're going to be a physician someday or if you're in med school, you serve. You take that talent and you use it over and over again throughout your lives to serve in the body of Christ. Whatever talent He has given you, whatever education He has given you, you use that for the body of Christ. Has He given you a talent that's going to give you a forum to speak in front of people? You use that for the blessing of the body of Christ. Everything you can, you leverage for the kingdom of God. You leverage for the body of Christ. 
my work. I get to all these universities and to speak to all these groups of students, not just about chemistry, but about God. Why do I get to speak about God? Because of my work at the university, because they think, hey, there's a scientist that knows about God. There's like two of them in the world. Let's have one of them. And, and so I, I go there and I speak. If I stop producing scientifically, I stop getting invited to these things. So to me, my work is all about using it to leverage it for the power of God, for the kingdom of God, for these opportunities to speak. The students at these universities aren't going to come out to see some pastor speak about God. But they come out to see a professor who's a scientist speak about God. Well, then I'm going to use it. Use that that platform. Use that for the power of God. Whatever He has given you, you use it for the power of God, for the furtherance of His kingdom. This is the mina that He's given us. We must use it or we will lose it. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You so much for Your Word. And I pray, Lord, that You would drop the conviction of the Holy Spirit upon these young people to shake their hearts, to learn to serve you. Father, that they would learn to serve you, that they would give of their time, of their money, and of their talents in service to the body of Christ, that they would take their small part of the world and they would be faithful in that little part of the world that you have given them. May they be faithful in that little part of the world that you have given them. The grace of God surround them, I pray. The grace of God surround them. And Father, to those here who do not know you, draw them to Jesus, I pray. Draw them to Jesus. For the glory of God, I pray. Amen.